Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Discussion today. Uh, thank you all for coming uh, to the Heritage Foundation for this book event. Um, I guess as a word of caution, we're just talking about this with uh, Sean. Uh, cell phones, make sure that they're turned to the uh, silent position. Uh, it doesn't help me. I have these hearing aids and they're Bluetooth enabled. So uh, whenever I get a phone call, it rings inside my head. Uh, I don't know if anybody else can hear that, but uh, anyway, it, it disturbs me. But uh, thank you for coming here for this. Uh, we've got a very active online presence as well. So this is going to be streaming, it will be archived. Uh, later on for a refer back. Uh, as I was just talking with Sean, it's just so great to have differing views of the global order, how the U.S. engages, the various challenges that come up. Is it conventional, non-conventional, irregular forces or problems or state-level types of actors? And he's got some very, I think, provocative, interesting uh, recommendations and uh, presentation. I'll go about 30 minutes and we'll go open it up for a very um, uh, casual, informal, uh, back-and-forth discussion about some of the points and see where you want to go with that. So uh, first, to uh, introduce our speaker, Sean McFate. Uh, I would stop and just say he's uh, a member of the story, the 82nd Airborne Division, and leave it at that. But he's done so much more after that. Uh, served in the contracting world, which he's going to talk about here, and then decided to uh, go down the uh, uh, less uh, moneyed route of an academic in some ways, right? And so um, he got his bachelor's from Brown University, master's from Harvard's, and then his PhD in international relations from London School of Economics. So uh, slouches even in the, uh, on the academic side as well. Uh, and I thought in going through the book, uh, again, some really key points, not to steal the thunder at all, but really to highlight things to listen for, you know, a massive rebalancing of the Army or, or U.S. military portfolio? You know, how much do we need to look at irregular types of warfare as opposed to conventional? Where do we make uh, uh, various assessments? Embracing more of a soft-like approach to the security environment, understanding its nuance and variance, and how do we actually tune our society and government and legal structures and all that along those lines? And uh, really making um, some dramatic, uh, again, adjustments in the portfolio of U.S. Uh, capabilities. So why, why so much in military, not so much in State Department or the intel community or, or aid organizations? So he's going to get into all of that, and we look again to a very robust discussion. Uh, when we get to the Q&A piece, I'm going to help uh, pass the mic around, and when we get to that, uh, please announce who you are and where you're from. Again, for our online viewing audience, we'll make sure we get you the microphone and then engage in the Q&A afterwards. So with that short prep, Sean, uh, help me welcome Sean McFay to the stage. Thank you very much. It is a privilege to be back at Heritage. I'm a big fan of Heritage's work and research. Um, you know, I wrote this book. I wrote this book because I was angry. Uh, like you, probably, I have lost dear friends in 15 years of war. As a taxpayer, it is obscene how much 
money we have spent in Iraq and Afghanistan and other places with little to show for it, in my opinion. And as a vet, it hurts me to see our national image tarnished by low-level foes. And so that was the driving puzzle behind this book. Here's, here's the conundrum, though, is that we have the very best military. We have the best troops. We have the best technology. We have the most money. Our military has more money than the next eight biggest militaries in the world combined. So what's the problem? And that is the question of the book. What is the problem? And I wrote this book to be read in an accessible way so that my mother could understand it, which made it the hardest book I've ever wrote. Because <laughs> it has to be so that you could, you could engage in the conversation with me but not exclude uh, you know, other people, non-experts. Um, so sort of bottom line up front um, is this, is that warfare has changed, but we have not. That we must change too. And I'll explain what I mean by this. Here's the problem, though, is that victorious nations like ours are very slow to change their way of war. Why should they? Let's go back, you know, 100 years. Let's go back, the way back machine, to Billy Mitchell, General Billy Mitchell. He was an American aviator in World War I, and he saw the future of war, and it was air power, air power. And when he came back to Washington, D.C., in 1919, he told everybody it was air power. And people thought, no, it's not air power because there's this adage, perhaps you've heard of it, is that generals always fight the last war or really this, the last successful war. And so England and France thought the future of war would look like the last one. It would be sort of static line defense, trenches, wars of attrition. And what did they invest in? The Maginot Line which is the best trench system the world had ever seen until it was not, right? Um, so Billy Mitchell was kind of laughed out of the room. He told everybody that the airplane back in his day, which was, you know, an airplane could sink a battleship. Now, when he said that in the 1920s, an airplane was little more than a motorized kite in the era of the super dreadnought. Laughed out of the room, but he had some pull he convinced the Navy to pull out some old German battleships into the Potomac, and he demonstrated that an airplane can indeed sink a battleship. Now, this became a huge media circus in this town in the 1920s between those who were like, well, you know, it's a defense, you know, it's a, it's a battleship, it's stationary, you're not shooting back, how realistic is this, versus... Uh, Mitchell saying, but I did think it, you know, it, mean, it must mean something. The debate got really heated. And General Pershing, who was then chief of staff, I think to keep him out of trouble, sent him to the other side of the planet for a year. Said, Mitchell, go do an inspection tour of the Pacific Ocean. So he did. Does he get him out of town? Mitchell came back with a report this thick, like 400 pages thick. And he said in this report that on a Sunday morning at 7.30 a.m., the Japanese will launch a sneak attack against Pearl Harbor using airplanes. He said this. This is from his report in 1924. Now, this and some other things proved too much for the generals 
who thought he had gone too far. So what do you think that they did? What did, what did Washington do, if you had to guess? They ignored it. They doubled down more. Well, <laughs> promoted him. <laughs> What's the opposite of promotion? Court-martialed him. Thank you. Excellent. Yeah. So at Fort McNair, he was court-martialed. And this wasn't just any court-martial. It was a Kim Kardashian court-martial. It was a mess. It was a media mess. And they found him guilty, and they basically defrocked him, and he spent the last several years of his life as a civilian going around the country talking about air power to anybody who would listen to him. People would show up just to hear the old fruitcake. He died in the 30s, buried in Milwaukee, and then this happened. And the U.S. military said they were caught completely off by surprise. It goes to show you that victorious nations are, it's hard for them to embrace the future of war when they tend to look to past victories. They sort of made up in their own way. The military didn't really apologize, but they did name a bomber after him in World War II, B-25, Mitchell Bomber, the only American bomber named after a person. So the question is, are we facing a Billy Mitchell moment right now? That is the question. Well, one has to start with, well, what are the threats, right? And we can spend all day, which we're not going to do, on what those threats are. What are the greatest threats to our country? China, Russia, is it Iran? Is it some version of ISIS that we may be seeing right now in Sri Lanka? Maybe not. Is it Venezuela? Is it our narco states in the south of our border? Genocide, North Korea, we can spend all day on the panoply of horrors that we all know in this room that we face. I would argue that it's all these and none of these. It's something systemic. As bad as these threats are, they are not the worst. The worst is a systemic threat, something I call durable disorder. It is what is replacing the Westphalian order of nation states as the Westphalian order has been retreating the past quarter century it is sort of what's left in its place. Now, this is not anarchy. This is not medieval, like the Knights of Knee and the Holy Can Grenade stuff. Um, but it can contain problems, but not really solve them. It doesn't mean the sky is falling in anarchy. Let's invest in more sky. But it does mean that there is persistent conflict and entropy simmering persistent conflict and entropy. There is governance on the ground of varying qualities, varying degrees that are not recognized in the nation-state system. This is a systemic threat that gives rise to some threats like failing states. It also can be exploited by other states like Russia, China, and others. And this is not new. This is not new. This is the world that Machiavelli was talking about of multiple types of world powers, oh, well, in his time, Italian powers fighting uh, with, you know, who, with, with mercenaries and other not national armies. Nationalism really wasn't a big part of it. Uh, this was sort of the world that he was talking about. But the whole world of West, the world that we grew up in sixth grade learning about of sort of the Westphalian order that the world is governed by nation states, that has a beginning, middle, and end. Yeah, and the you know the beginning you could say around you know 1800s the middle the Crimean War the U.S. Civil War the end World War II uh, and later and it's been sort of on a glide slope since then 
Here are signs of durable disorder today is that half of all peace deals fail in five years. The majority of countries today are fragile or failed by any metric. Um, the number of armed conflicts has doubled since 1945 around the world. Um, and, you know, conflicts persist in forever wars. I teach at Georgetown. I have graduate students. They think sort of forever wars are normal. Think about that. Um, we are seeing mercenaries return. And not like the, the lone guy in the Congo with an AK-47 saying, have gun, will travel. We're talking about the Wagner Group. We're talking about others. Uh, very, like, you can rent special operations forces these days, and many countries and companies do. And also, non-state actors are no longer the most powerful. I would argue that the Fortune 500 is a very powerful non-state actor, as are others. Now, this is the new environment of war and warfare. Those who understand it will and can exploit it, and those who don't will be exploited. I think this is the US foreign policy. It's the Humpty Dumpty approach. We can all put the liberal world order back together as if the liberal world order you know, may or may not even have ever existed as we imagine it. But either way, I would say that our moment for this is past. Our moment is past for this. We can discuss that in Q&A. We have a new type of global environment, and it has a new type of warfare. A new type of war, world order, begets a new type of warfare. This is not, I'm not the only one to recognize this. Last year in the National Defense Strategy, we recognized that the world is becoming more disordered, and we're focusing now on great power competition, which really means these two guys, China and Russia. No surprise. But here's the question. Why does everybody assume that if there's going to be a conflict between the US and or China and Russia, that it will be a conventional fight? That it will look like our last successful war, which was World War II. That is what many in this town believe. I believe that's wrong. I believe that conventional war is dead, or is more or less dead or dying. And this is the first rule of my, these 10 new rules of war, which we'll leave in for Q&A. I'm not alone in this. Uh, social science data shows us clearly. Here's a graph of conflicts, armed conflicts since 45. The red line in the bottom shows traditional interstate conflicts. Blue is everything else. Blue in the top is everything else. It's very clear, and this is the correlates of war database, it's very clear that there is nothing more unconventional today than a conventional war. Nobody fights conventionally anymore except for us. Except for us. And that's why we struggle. We can even ask this question, are we already at war with Russia and China? And that part of their strategy is to keep us thinking that we are at peace so they can exploit us. That's an open question. So what does war look like in durable disorder? What is the, the, new, the global environment has changed. What is warfare, what's changing with it? What does it look like? It's getting sneakier. War is getting sneakier. Let's look at a couple of quick cases. One is the Crimea. Now, in the old rules of war, when the Soviets wanted to take over or put down a... Uh, province, if you will, that was rising up, they would send in armor, tanks. Think of Hungary in 56. Think of Czechoslovakia in 68. They could have done that with eastern Ukraine. They had their military could have blitzkrieged into Ukraine. They had, compared to Ukraine, a mighty military. 
And they could have just gone right to the Crimea, but they didn't do that. What did they do? They used sneakiness. They used things that gave them plausible deniability, like Spetsnaz special forces, mercenaries like the Wagner Group. Uh, we had little green men. We saw uh, Donbass Battalion and other sort of proxy militias that were a little more than astroturf and lots of propaganda. The thinking, the strategic logic is this, is that, you know, in an, we live in an era of the global information age where plausible deniability is more powerful than firepower. So while policymakers are still trying to wrap their heads around what exactly was going on in the Crimea and what should the response be, it was a fait accompli. That's how they captured the Crimea. Look at the South China Sea. Old rules of war, we use deterrence. We throw more carriers into the South China Sea. That should deter China. It's not working. China, in the new rules of war, one of the rules is there's no such thing as war or peace. There's war and peace. We tend to think of war and peace like pregnancy. You either are or you are not. Or rather, it's like a light switch. It's either on or it's off. And so what China does in the South China Sea, they go right up to the edge of war, where we respond and they stop. But they exploit, they keep and capture everything that they got in that space in between. So they're exploiting the space between war and peace. And they're doing this one island and one ally at a time. And not with carrier groups, not with carrier groups. Or mercenaries. These are former SEALs, former Green Berets in, the, in Yemen acting as a hunter-killer hit squad for our Middle East monarchy. We are seeing organized high-end mercenaries in Ukraine, Iraq, Syria, Nigeria, Somalia, parts of Congo, arguably Venezuela today. Eric Prince, former founder of Blackwater, wants to replace all American troops, well, most American troops in Afghanistan with mercenaries. And that's his solution for Afghanistan, using the British East India as a model, which I think is ridiculous. Mercenaries are, are now, and it, what happens is that when you privatize war, it changes warfare. And what happens, think of it this way, it's like CrossFit meets Adam Smith. You're blending military strategies with market ones, which our four stars have no idea about how to fight, but Machiavelli did. You can engage in market strategy warfare, like you can buy, if you want to invade a, an enemy, you can buy all the mercenary units around them to deny them a defense. Or they can engage in bribing your military units from underneath you. Those are market strategies. So in the future, victory goes to the cunning and not the strong. War is going from CrossFit to Sun Tzu. But we invest in the strong. That's our problem. So this is durable disorder is the new environment for war. We're not set up to fight in this environment the way we think, what we buy, how we train. It does not meet the new rules of war, and we do not innovate, and, and we wonder why we're frustrated. Warfare has changed, but we have not. Our adversaries see this, and this is because I say we have strategic atrophy. We have strategic atrophy. I'm not just talking about people in uniform. I'm talking about the national security establishment. We have tactically and operationally, we are unmatched, but strategically, we're being outfought. So here's an example. Here's war as we imagine it. What are we, I like to say that budgets are moral documents because they do not lie. Look at where we're putting money in. We're putting money into things like robots and technology. 
This is a robot like Boston Dynamics. It's a prototype. They make other types of robots. I mean, I don't know what the thinking is, is that we're going to have a landing craft show up on the shores of North Korea, a rampart comes down, and out come robots. I don't know what this is. We already have the best uh, infantry in the world, I would say. Um, we have things like this. This is a DARPA program. Um, those, you know, you may have friends who play Xbox games like Call of Duty. It's a version of that where a soldier wears a visor and it, it has complete, you know, identify friend and foe, collective targeting, communications, all these things. Again, we already are masters of the tactical realm of war. Why are we investing in more tactical realm of war? Or my favorite, or least favorite, the F-35. Now, this airplane has cost or will cost taxpayers $1.5 trillion. That's more than Russia's GDP on an airplane. In two long wars, does anybody know how many combat missions it's racked up? You want to take a guess? Zero. Zero. You know, I'm, you know, the, the worth of any weapon system is its utility. And as an old, as an old grunt, army grunt, that dog don't hunt. Yet we're buying more of them. They cost about $45,000 an hour to fly, which is almost the salary of the guy repairing it. And they don't fly very well. The last time we had a strategic dogfight, I think, was probably the Korean War. So why are we investing in more dogfighters? I do not know. It also can be outflown by F-16s, F-15s, A-10s. There's a big debate in this town about the F-35. I just think it's, you know, this is an example of strategic atrophy in my mind. So that's how, as we imagine war, let's think about war and reality. What's going on today? This. Manipulating elections for, of democracies, for example. Now, we know that Russia tried to do it. We don't know how successful they were. We don't know if it was a trifling, laughable attempt or if they swung a close election. And I'm not just talking about the United States of America. I'm also talking about Brexit. I'm talking about votes across Europe. And the logic is this. Who cares about the sword if you can manipulate the arm that wields it? That's strategic thinking. Another is this, is, is Russia. So in the old rules, well, here's a picture of a bomber, a uh, Russian bomber, but used in an unconventional way. So in the old rules of, well, Russia has always wanted to disunite Europe, whether it's you know, Soviet Union disuniting the EU and NATO or Russia today. In the, old, in the old rules of war, what they would do would be sort of utility of force stuff. They would have a massive military exercise on the boundary of East and West Germany. Think of Zapod 81, 150,000 Soviet troops and weapons all lined up to invade Europe. And they said, wait a minute, NATO, it's just a military exercise. Don't freak out. And of course, NATO doesn't know that. NATO freaks out a little bit. In the new rules of war, what does Russia do? Well, they weaponize refugees. So, for example, they bombed Syrian civilian centers that helped create a tidal wave of refugees that crashed on the shores of the EU that created the Brexit, that creates the rise of right-wing national parties across Europe that want to break up the EU. The Soviets would have died for such an outcome. Or this. When was the last time anybody saw a Hollywood movie that had China as the villain? Anybody know? And don't say Red Dawn 2. They had to change all that. Nobody knows because China bought Hollywood. They green light everything. 
They control, they own what, you know, we're getting into a, war is growing more epistemological as it gets sneakier. Determining truth from lies determines winners and losers. It's no longer a battlefield victory of like the Clausewitzian old rules of war. They just bought one of the biggest megaphones in the world. Legally, they bought it. And they're creating their own in China as well. And uh, they control their own, their own narrative. And that's very powerful. Strategic influence is very powerful. So what does victory look like in the new rules of war, in this new era? Well, it's an infinite game. It is more like business. You don't, like Coke is not going to destroy Pepsi or vice versa. They will have better quarters. They will have worse quarters. But the point is, is we, we, are, we should not expect a USS-Missouri moment. You know, a peace treaty with the Taliban is not going to look like a peace treaty with Japan. It's going to look more like Vietnam. So we must, have, we must learn how to win in this new age of durable disorder. We are currently not set up to do so, and it starts with our strategic thinking, not our military. And we have to remember that even an undefeated military can lose. Russia, I mean, sorry, Rome thought itself the eternal city until 410 AD when Alaric sacked it. So in this book, I lay out what I call 10 new rules of war. You can call them principles, ideas. I don't want to get hung up on semantics of rules. Um, the first four are things that we have to stop doing. And the last five uh, the last are things that we must start to do. To a traditional warrior, some of this will make their heads explode. But remember, we've been here before. This looks a lot like the Cold War. I'm not saying we're facing a new Cold War. I don't want to fall into that trap. But we've done these things before. We've just forgotten the last 25 years. So with that, what I'd like to do at this point is sort of turn it over to Q&A. We can discuss the rules or any, any questions or any things you'd like to discuss. Thank you very much. Name and affiliation, if any. Oh, Jim Phillips at uh, Heritage, and I'm intrigued by number four. Hearts and minds do not matter because, in a sense, if you mentioned uh, controlling the arm affects the sword, but doesn't yeah. controlling or influencing the mind? Yes. Uh, yes. Thank you for asking this question. So, um, uh, it's a great question. I'm happy to give me a chance to clarify. I clarified in the chapter on this. Uh, but here, let me let me tell you. So, um, strategic influence is primo in the new rules of war. What rule number four is discussing, it's in this category of bad habits that we have to stop. And this is like tactical hearts and minds. This is really against the counterinsurgency strategy that we employed in Iraq and Afghanistan, which I, I believe was disastrous, not in its execution, but its formulation. It was based, uh, it, the strategic logic that we had is this, is that, Populations are bribable, and they are not. Uh, so imagine this. China goes to Detroit and says, your life sucks. We know it. We will give you free food, free health care, free medicine. We will give you a football stadium. But you've got to vote commie next election. Well, what would Detroit say? Well, say, we'll take all your stuff, but we won't take your ideas. That's what happened in Iraq and Afghanistan. That's because the model that we used for FM 324, the counterinsurgency, was based on David Galula 
And David Gallo was a French-Tunisian who was interested not in establishing democracies, but in reestablishing French colonial rule. So it was the wrong model. And I think that people embraced it here due to confirmation bias, that everybody wants to be American, everybody wants to be us. If we just give them a little hand, helping hand, they will do so. They will not do so. So rule four really is a critique of American coin strategy in Iraq and Afghanistan, so we don't try to do that mistake again. Uh, but influence at the strategic level, as you, as you suggest, is extremely important, extremely relevant. Uh, Terry Miller from the Heritage Foundation. I, I'm a little unclear as to, uh, you have rule 10 there, you didn't really talk about victory yeah. is fungible. Maybe that covers this, but what is the goal here? How do, how do you define what, what winning or losing looks like? Our traditional idea is that we're going to defend the territorial integrity of the United States and our freedom. What are we defending here, and what, mm -hmm. what does victory look like? It's a great question. So um, <clears throat> uh, victory in the old rules of war, which I'm thinking conventional war, traditional conventional war, is this. You, you kill more enemy or capture more enemy. You take their territory, and you fly their flag over their capital, right, more or less. Um, that doesn't work any longer. I mean, we've done that in different places, Iraq and Afghanistan. The Israelis did that in uh, 2006, and southern Lebanon didn't work there. Uh, victory is more than just that. There, this rule means that there's many ways to win, and there's also many ways to lose. Uh, and I give examples of this. So one example is, is the Maoist strategy, which is really more than, uh, than the, the, uh, the, the Fabian, the Delayer strategy, is that you, if you have a foreign invader, you delay them and mire them down so much that they collapse in their own weight and leave voluntarily. That's a victory uh, in, in, in modern war. So the, the idea of Rule 10 is I talk about different types of victory. It's not just a conventional war battlefield. It's not a Waterloo moment. It is many different forms and types. And I sort of flush out some of these ideas in here. The idea is that there's not a, there's not a concrete archetype that we should strive for. It's more nuanced and we need to have supple thinking. Um, but it's, it, it, I end with this rule because also that is where more thinking is needed, to be honest with you. What, what does winning for us look like in the 21st century? Thank you. It's Sean Dakota Wood at Heritage. Um, yeah. So you did a lot of great uh, problem definition, <clears throat> okay? But when you start to get into, like, the best weapons to not fire bullets, number five and some others, yeah. uh, proposed solutions. I mean, yeah. what, what do we need to change on the U.S. side uh, to achieve these victories from a, from your perspective. Yeah, so um, this book is not just a um, a list of, of ailments. I propose d different types of solutions that are meant to, they're, they're not something you'd find in a white paper in a think tank. They're meant to sort of try to move thinking. Uh, they're meant to be provocative, but not senselessly so. So one of the ideas I talk about is this idea of, a, of an American foreign legion, okay? Now, when you think of a foreign legion, Many of you are thinking like Claude Van Damme. I know you are, right? Um, or you're thinking of French mercenaries. But the French Foreign Legion, which is sort of a model, is not mercenaries. The French Foreign Legion is a part of the French military. They fight only, they're part of the, they fight only for Paris. They're led by French officers. The only difference between them and other units is really that their enlisted come from around the world. And uh, I'm proposing something similar. 
The reason is, is that when we want to do force projection abroad with sort of boots on the ground, we have three terrible options. We either have to do these long deployments like Iraq and Afghanistan that Americans do not like uh, and get messy quickly. We can rely on unreliable proxy groups um, or we can use contractors. And, and we've done a mixture of all three. A French Foreign Legion um, with certain caveats could help us there because they could go to a, a zone of disorder that matters to us and stay there for long term, for like 10 years or more. Get, and they, they don't fight like American units. They fight just like a French Foreign Legion does not fight like a French unit. It does other things. Uh, it can fight in the shadows and it has sort of the staying power of general purpose forces with the punch of special operations. Now, there's a lot of caveats about this, about how do we do this? Why do people sign up? Um, they would sign up for citizenship. And we already have a visa program in our armed forces that does this already. We have had it for decades. So it would be an extension of that. Um, but we look at, like, also, what are some of the best weapons that, you know, they don't all fire bullets. Look at influence. We are, we are really terrible at strategic influence. There's lots of reasons for that. Um, but we need to up our game there. Uh, there's no question about it. And there's a couple others. But the idea here is, is that some of the best weapons are not, may not be found in the Department of Defense. Dr. Maffei, Tom Spohr here from Heritage Foundation. I'm one of those uh, guys whose head was nearly exploding during yeah. some of this here. But, um, uh, and I wanted to hit the F-35 before I forget. Sure. Uh, the reason it hadn't been deployed by the U.S. at least in combat is it wasn't certified as fully operational capable until, I don't even know if it is now. It, it, it's a I, IOC. Yeah. It started yep. flying combat sorties last August. Yeah, and right. the Israelis have used it in combat, and the only way that, uh, Syria knew it was there as things started blowing up. But anyhow, my uh, I, my theory is conventional war is not dead. Mm -hmm. Conventional war is suppressed. And the reason it's suppressed is because the United States and maybe some others have demonstrated such overwhelming dominance in that arena that others have seen, hey, there is no real path to success today in mm -hmm. conventional war, perhaps. But I think you would see it perhaps in Raqqa or Mosul or Idlib. But anyhow, um, the, the reason... Uh, conventional war, in my view at least, is suppressed is because of that dominance. And if for, if the United States was to become less dominant in that area mm -hmm. or something like that, that I think it is just, it's like a cancer, you know, that's getting chemotherapy and it and it comes back in full force. And so I'd just be interested in your thoughts on that for sure. Yeah. No, it's a, it's a good, good comment. I'm glad that you asked it. So just on the F-35, and I don't want to quote too much of that, I would take issue with the combat missions, quote-unquote combat missions we've done in the fall, because if the enemy really can't reasonably fire back, is it a live fire exercise as a combat mission? Um, I'm a grunt, so that's how I look at it. Um, to the bigger point is, is I don't think we should scrap our conventional forces. We have the best. We already have dominance. My point is that since we have dominance, do we need to double down there? We should double down on other things. So do we need two new Ford-class carriers that cost $13 billion a copy before you add sailors and aircraft? They don't seem to be deterring China, the South China Sea. In fact, I think we have to rethink deterrence for the 21st century because deterrence does not work, in, the, in my opinion, in the new rules of war as it did in the old. Um, my point is, is that we, don't, we maintain our dominance, but we don't need to, to capitalize on it. We need to put that elsewhere. Um, if, you know, if we did quit dominance, I mean, yeah, we, we would see others 
compensate. Um, but if you look, I think it's also instructive to look at like China's strategy. So there are three warfare strategy, which is really not studied in this town enough, in my opinion, except for like the true total, you know, strategic nerds out there. Um, it's three warfares is this. is One is its influence. Look at Hollywood. One is economics. Their one belt, one road initiative is really a national security initiative, in my opinion. Just, just ask Sri Lanka that got Tony soprano out of their big port. Um, and the other is lawfare. Those, none of that is kinetic. And it seems to be working for them. And we should look at that. doesn't mean we have to imitate it, but we should be more savvy. We're thinking in terms, in my opinion... Um, the Secretary of the Army just announced his wish list is like more, you know, air defense, artillery, and sort of tactical weapons of war. I think that's that's the wrong wish list. We need to be thinking strategically at all instruments of national power, not just the ones that shoot. So I don't think we disagree. We may disagree on on the get the, the distance of the gap, but I don't think we should like oh let's scrap all of our our F-15s and stuff. I'm not suggesting that. Yes, sir. In the back. Uh, Ted Voorhees from Covington. Uh, it's great talk, very thought provoking. I, 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 it's, it covers though so much ground. Yes. I wonder if, uh, for example, the new rules of war isn't this another way of looking at it? New rules of new threat slash shock reduction. For example, what what does the American public worry about these days? Suicide bombers, narco trafficking, which is causing the opioid crisis in Europe, mass migration, yes, it can be exploited by Russia, maybe, but it's a much bigger issue than whether... So so my my question is, just could you disentangle a little bit the the real threats we're looking at from thinking of them in war terms? Yeah, yeah. Which is what I think you're trying to do. Yeah, so thank you for that opportunity. So first of all, I am not of um, the mind where... My aperture for security and and uh, safety are the same thing. That there is a difference between, you know, uh, war and say an an event that might cause a war. So a hurricane or typhoon comes through. That's not war. That's an event that could be a triggering event for war. There are some who, in like especially the human security community, who view everything that is safety related to a security related thing as well. I think that. That blurring in the line is too broad to be useful and can even be dangerous. Um, I think that, uh, but what I'm talking about here is like looking at what Russia did in Syria, how it weaponized refugees. There's an ongoing refugee crisis. They exploited it, all right? Uh, I don't think they created it. They, they catalyzed parts of it, but it, is a, but it achieved a war goal in a deliberate way. Um, so I think we need to think, uh, part of this is like, um, this is a very Sun Tzuian book, which is uh, war is deception and war is sneaky. And strategies that succeed are sneaky strategies, and, they're, and you should exploit a traditional warrior's vision of war. But that doesn't mean that uh, a pandemic is a national security issue. Um, it, could, it could launch one, but it doesn't by itself create it is itself one. So um, it, it does cover a lot of ground, but it really the, the genesis of this book is strategic thinking. How do we increase our strategic IQ for the upcoming and more current century? Yes, sir. Uh, I'm Vincent Palomo from American University. So given that war 
or it's not just war or peace. It's kind of that gray area in the middle. Yeah. Would you kind of say that we're with that in China? And if so, yeah. what what would it look like if we were to lose that? And if we currently are losing, what <clears throat> some, I guess, so, what would it look like? Yeah, so um, I think of another way to answer that. I mean, I think that we are arguably at this, you know, look at the Cold War. Were we at war with the Soviet Union? Well, yes and no. It was It was not just a metaphor, but it wasn't a high-intensity conflict either. Um, and we're entering such a period now with, like, with Russia and China. Not that we should look, look backwards to replicate the Cold War, but we've been here before. We've fought in these, these zones. War is getting sneakier. Uh, the problem that we're facing is, and I'm, I'm not advocating war should get sneakier. I'm saying as an observer, I see it. The problem that we learned in the 1970s in the Church Committee and others is that war, that secrets of democracy are not compatible. So how do we fight a war that's, that's warfare that's getting sneakier without losing our democratic soul, right? Um, and I don't really have a good answer for that. I flag it in my book with intellectual honesty. Say, so here's a, I'm bracketing this important problem, just like I bracket other important problems. I don't talk about war ethics. I leave that to a separate, you know, book by somebody else. Um, but if you, you know, war is not getting sneakier. This is what it looks like. If we want to get, for example, like think about China. If you want to get China out of the South China Sea. The, new, the old rules of war is that we throw in conventional forces as a deterrent. We do sanctions. We do you know, dip notes and other diplomacy things. That's fine. It doesn't just seem to be working very much. If we were to fight the new rules of war, if you want China out of the South China Sea, I'm just brainstorming here so nobody hold me terribly, terribly accountable for this. Um, let's support the Uyghur insurgency in secret, right? Uh, let's think about how do you how do you manufacture distrust among the elites? Autocracy is also a vulnerable. We are vulnerable to, to election fraud. They're vulnerable because they centralize all their power at the top amongst elites. How do you how do you create paranoia so that the autocrat takes out half of his lieutenants for you? Uh, how do we use deception? How do we use lawfare to disrupt the one belt one road initiative? Uh, let's start thinking about those types of things, which are not necessarily kinetic. There are other, there are other sort of instruments of national power. Isn't that the winning or losing doesn't matter anymore, but who is making money <laughs> and how long you are making money? Well, that's... Who's making money has always mattered, it seems, in world politics. Uh, just ask the patrician classes of Rome. Um, I, you know, I think winning and losing does matter. I just think it looks different. So uh, we're getting to a, one of the rules on here is that um, no, rule number eight, there will be wars without states. All right. Uh, you could argue already there are wars without states in places like Latin America. Well, you have narco wars, and states are not driving that con- those conflicts. They are prizes to be won in those conflicts, like we call them narco-states. Um, so, you know, and if you, you're thinking about, like, rules six and seven combined, rule six is a new mercenary class rising in the world today that's very sophisticated and capable. Rule seven is that, you know, now the super-rich can become superpowers because anybody who's wealthy enough can wage war for any reason they want, no matter how petty. And this creates and generates more war, and this is what Machiavelli was talking about in his 
is all his works, The Art of War, Discourses of Livy, The Prince, and so forth. Um, I think we're returning to that point where the super rich can now also be armed and dangerous and will wage wars for different reasons. And that could be oligarchs, it could be drug lords, it could be Fortune 500, it could be extractive industry, it could be all sorts of things. So in that sense, yes. Sean Dakota Wood again. Uh, so just to tug on that, yeah, yeah. Uh, in um, uh, in your book, and not necessarily here on your list, you talk about some modifications in the American military system. Yes. So the classic model is I'm a really good infantry officer, and I ascend to be chief of staff of the Army, right? Right. But you propose you need kind of a different experiential background in order to uh, see the world in different ways and different skill sets coming uh, to this. So if you could expand. Yeah, that. sure. Thank you very much, Nigar, for that. Um, so again, the book offers a lot of thought-provoking uh, recommendations, uh, Partly, uh, probably to move the needle on these things. So, one of the things I want to I want to ask is that are like if you look at who are who's at the top of the services. You know, in the army, it's generally an infantry four star. The navy, it's a, usually a submarine commander or a fighter pilot. Uh, and the air force, usually a, a fighter pilot. Um, what would it look like if we had an intelligence four star? How would they shape the service differently? Um, why you know why do we also why don't we teach you know why do we do strategic education when an officer is a field grade, which is usually at year 15 to 20, your mark of their career? Why not start it when they're plebes or midshipmen, when they're like undergraduates? Uh, why not create a separate class? Because right now we have, we have this idea that tactical, you master tactical realm, then you go to operational art realm, then you go to strategic realm. That's too late. That's for Napoleonic warfare. I think we, should, we need a blending of this, and we need to think about how do we identify and select strategists. I think we have natural strategists in our ranks who leave at the eight to ten year mark in the military because they're frustrated. Occasionally you get these generals like General Marshall who is a brilliant strategist but they're exceptional. They're not the rule. Um, and one of the biggest problems we, we face is that people mistake tactics for strategy. It's a tactitization of strategy and that contributes to us being frustrated in these places abroad. So I look at this and some other like personnel changes uh, you know, it's also with the guard and the, the active, but I don't want to make more heads explode. There's like there's brains on the roof here. Uh. Uh, it's uh, Vincent Belomo again from American University. Um, just on your last comment, yes. would you consider, instead of like having it like step one, step two, step three, certain individuals like who are natural strategists could actually start out as strategists? Because I know in the Army... Yeah. You, there is a strategist MOS for an officer, but they can't yeah. become a strategist unless they're beyond captain in a certain amount well, of years. Well, like, the, the strategist MOS, the officer, you're basically doing like PowerPoint and Pentagon and the J5. I mean, it's it's kind of a miserable. Uh, it's not it's not the intended outcome, shall we say? I mean, maybe others would disagree with that, uh, but uh, but uh, but here's the point: is that also why do we assume the best strategists all wear uniforms, right? Maybe they come from civilian society. One of the critical things is, is to, to think about strategic problems is to think about ambiguity. Well, most of our education from West Point and other and ROTC and the commissioning programs are they're engineering programs that have solvable, teach you how to think about solvable questions when we're really facing wicked problems at the national strategy level. And a wicked problem is three things. It's one that experts disagree on defining the problem. One, two, is that experts, nobody can figure out a solution. Think about Afghanistan. And three, and here's the kicker, 
is that even if you had a solution, you may not know it for like a generation or two. So we need to have people thinking about the unthinkable, thinking about ambiguity. And in some ways, I believe like liberal arts, parts of liberal arts, could be a good way to think about that. So when you read like literature like Dostoevsky, you're not reading about late 19th century Russian society. I mean, you can, but it's really thinking about other things that are, uh, to help get your mind around um, highly complex, highly ambiguous things. So can we create a program, like sort of like an Ender's Game program, if you will, almost, to identify, select, and train this type of thinking from a younger age? Yeah, Jim Carafano. Hi, Jim. Okay. Um, really, I really enjoyed the conversation. Sorry I came in late, but I really enjoyed the conversation about um, strategy. Actually, you know, one of the arguments I consistently I, – I agree with you that we, we start training strategists too late. Yeah. Um, I, I do think, you know, you, college is not where you start to train strategists because strategy is not a theoretical exercise. It's yeah. actually a real-world exercise. And so if I had a choice between – who would I make a strategist, a theoretical physicist or an engineer? I would probably lead towards the engineer. And the reason for that is, okay, he may not be the, mo the most theoretically brilliant genius, but he understands how gravity works in, in the real world. And strategy has to operate in the real world. So I, I think the model has to be slightly more sophisticated than that mm -hmm. in that you, it's, it probably starts around the five or six or seven, five or six year mark because that mm -hmm. way – People understand how plumbing works, how reality works, how human beings work, what it's like to be cold in a fire. And then you layer on top of that this the kind of larger thinking. Right. But, but what we start is guys are 45 years old, which I totally agree with you is too late. Yeah. And, and I think if we just look at the brain physics, that's not how brain physics works, right? Yeah. If you wait to somebody's 45 years old before you start introducing different construct, mental constructs, it's, it's you're just not as intellectually – flexible and and creative as you as you were in the 20 and your you know late late 20s or, or early 30s you know i was thinking it's interesting how few strategists there actually are in the strategy field because most of these men and women never actually do strategy right exactly they wind up doing operational stuff and we call them strategists but unless they're actually working on the national defense strategy or they they have a tour in the nsc almost none of them will ever do strategy in their entire life and so it's amazing how few strategists you actually need so I'm not actually sure you need a um, you need a uh, um, a, a career pattern mm -hmm. or a, a professional development plan necessarily f to do strategists because you really only need a handful of them at the end of the day and and maybe the answer looks something more like George Marshall's little black book of who are the people who are really capable of larger you know con con conceptual thinking but I I totally applaud you for your kind of challenging the traditional yeah. thing and I'm also thinks of, of Tim Kane who came and did his book about mm -hmm. you know why do we just kind of put officers into a peg hole rather than look at a more competitive and I've noticed the Air Force I actually has moved actually more um, towards that model so um, uh, so I I would be interested in um, you know how have you how are your conversations with with the military people on JPME going and how are people are, are do you hear other people thinking about this or are we just kind of doing the same old thing? Well, I don't want to be on record discussing the J7. Um, look, I, I think two projects that interest me a great deal from this book uh, is, and they're tied, uh, one is how do we create better strategists? How do we find them? How do we create them? And maybe we don't need a whole separate 
track for them. And the second is, what is grand strategy? Because that's a term that has, has lost, I think, all meanings in town. Um, you know, in terms of, you know, right now, uh, Mr. Mattis said in national defense strategy that JPME is moribund, basically. Uh, but the, but the, the JPME system doesn't know how to interpret that, and they tend to be very defensive about it. Um, and so uh, National Defense University, where I'm currently employed, uh, uh, <laughs> at least until a couple minutes ago, thanks, Jim, um, <laughs> The, uh, they, um, they're going through this a big, you know, curriculum review right now. We don't know where it will lead. Uh, where I'm also getting a lot of uh, interest in this book is, is SOCOM, as you can imagine, and their own sort of curriculum review is like, what is, what's the role for special operations forces in a great power age, uh, et cetera. But there's not a whole lot of, um, at least in my mind, a lot of there there at the moment. Maybe that will happen. Maybe this will be another bureaucratic rock drill. Uh, maybe change has to come from the outside in sort of a Thomas Kuhnian way. Um, or, or maybe it could be supplemented by other sort of other paradigm shifters. So this is an open question for me, is how do we create, you know, you know we, we can't institutionalize George Marshall, you know. So how do we, you know, how do we go about this? Or we just give up and say we just we get lucky or not, you know, like, you know, Nelson Mandela in South Africa type of thing. Um, so this is a, of a, a critical concern of mine, an interest of mine, without a good answer. Uh, Terry Miller again. Terry. Um, rule nine is shadow wars will dominate. Yes. And indeed, when you talked about some of the strategies like uh, uh, encouraging the Uyghur uh, revolution in China, for example. A lot of this will happen in a clandestine way. Yes. And uh, I wondered if you'd given any thought to how uh, fighting uh, clandestinely can be made uh, fully consistent with the democratic nature mm. of U.S. society where yeah. we need a true societal consensus. Right. Um, at least in theory, to go to war. No, it's a great question, and I don't have I don't have your answer, Terry. Uh, <laughs> I, I flagged this. So one of the one of, I look at shadows. I look at like what does Russia do right now? What is China doing, and what others are doing? Um, we call it fighting beneath the threshold of war, which I think is not a helpful term, or the gray zone, not a helpful term. Um, but we did this in the Cold War. Now, not always, not always very well. I talk about the example of Guatemala '53. Okay, um, I think how we executed that was brilliant. How we handled what came after was a catastrophe. But we need to separate those two things. We've done this before as cold warriors, but never comfortably. And we know from the 1970s, the era, of, you know, the decade of intelligence reform, there is blowback, and deservedly so. So I don't know how we do this. And I'm not making a case. I'm not advocating that war gets more sneaky. Again, I'm just the guy saying this is what I do for a living. This is why I see it going. And we have to start thinking this way. And we're generally not doing so. So I don't. This is the big question for me: is how do we do? How do we fight? I call it shadow wars. How do we fight? You know, whatever you want to call it, a regular war, as a democracy without losing our soul. One question. Last question. Teresa Adams with the DC GOP. Um, you mentioned Russia and China as being big threats, and how do you, do you address in your book about the Islamic threat 
um, they are very sneaky and unconventional yeah. in how they do their warfare. And uh, I think of, to create strategists, we have to educate the truth about who our enemies are and their ideologies. Sure. And that's my opinion. What's your opinion on that? Well, I think the, the question we look at, um, it's really a question of ideology, right? And um, it's difficult. So if you look at like NSC 68, uh, the famous 1950s sort of uh, Cold War uh, strategy laid out mostly by Nietzsche and Atkinson, it discusses a couple of things that we don't see in current national security strategies. You know, America's place in the world, the war of ideology, and how we're going to win it, right? Um, there are things I discuss in this book that may be very controversial, like let's use ridicule. Ridicule is a very potent way to delegitimize ideologies. And, uh, but it's like fire. A little bit goes a long way. So uh, like we all remember, you know, Muslim suicide bombers in Iraq. It's double haram, right? It's double haram because Muslims don't commit suicide and Muslims do not kill other Muslims. And it seemed to me that the Muslim community had a kind of a yawn about it. But when a Danish newspaper had a cartoon of Muhammad with a bomb in his, in his turban, a lot of Islamic communities were incited to violence. That is an example of the power of ridicule. Now, I'm not suggesting that we do the Danish cartoons. It's just it's an example of how powerful ridicule is. So, for example, moving away from Islam, is like Putin rides around half naked on a bear. Why can't we do something with that? Right? I mean... Uh, there, are, there are many ways to, to uh, many ways to degrade an enemy, and you know, firearms are just one of them. So I think when it comes to ideology, it's not taking over Rockar or Mosul. It's about how do you stake the ide- ideology? How do you delegitimize it? And that's more than just talking to, you know, former, you know, Islamic combatants and trying to sort of say, oh, there's a more moderate way of Islam. I think that's limited to a certain effect. But this is this can be very controversial. All right, uh, great. Thank you very much. It's been a great pleasure coming to Heritage for a lightning discussion. Thank you, Dakota. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Thank you all uh, for showing up. We do have some books for sale on the outside. I'm sure he would appreciate it. <laughs> and it is a great read. And again, thank you for coming. And uh, look forward to our next uh, book event. Thank you. <laughs>